Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Samantha Nutt. She is a doctor. She is a longtime worker in humanitarian aid in war zones around the world. She is the author of a wonderful book called Damned Nations, Greed, Guns, Armies, and Aid. She is also the founder of War Child, an organization uh, in Canada, and she gives uh, a wonderful talk on TED Talks that you can find under the title, The Real Harm of the Global Arms Trade. Samantha Nutt, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Well, thanks very much, David. I really appreciate it. Well, it's great to have you on here. Um, I I loved your book. I particularly loved the the topic that comes up in the talk you gave to TED Talks uh, about the damage that, that arms dealing does to the world and to aid efforts and and so on can you can you talk about where where arms come from where they go and how they impact uh, world affairs thank you yeah i mean certainly i can you know i've come uh, as you can imagine working in in war zones around the world over the span of about uh, 20 plus years now i've obviously come face to face with uh, a number of different armed groups and in particular children who are carrying automatic rifles and who have killed with those rifles uh, and yet some of those kids as a, which is a point I make in my TED Talk, have, have never been to school. And so as a, as a public health doctor, um, you know, one of the things that we do as public health doctors is we are trained to look at, well, what are the risks and what are the threats to people's health and well-being and what interventions are most likely to uh, make the biggest difference and to reduce uh, the, the death toll. And increasingly, as I was uh, working in different war zones around the world from Somalia to eastern Congo, the preponderance of small arms, light weapons that were being, that were readily accessible uh, to militia groups and cheap um, and widely available, that 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 to me uh, became one of the greatest obstacles to the the entire humanitarian response. Uh, People who needed uh, access to those services were not able to get it because they were constantly facing threats and intimidation and their movements were being blocked uh, and women were experiencing high, high rates of sexual violence. And at the same time, those aid organizations that were trying to get to those groups uh, most at need were also impeded in those efforts. And, and that became the basis really for um, my own deep dive into this question of arms and where they're going and what they're being used for, but more importantly, where they come from. Uh, because we're used to seeing these kinds of images of child soldiers around the world. And the question that rarely gets asked, unfortunately, is, uh, well, what is the source of these weapons and how is this even possible? And that, that's what I tried to focus on during my TED Talk. And, and, and what country, for anyone who may be in the dark on this, is the top arms dealer to the world? Well, certainly the United States is. It's responsible for about half of all uh, arms transactions in the world. But, you know, within that, it's also very difficult to, say, compare... U.S. arms transactions to countries such as Russia and China because uh, the level of reporting uh, from those nations is, uh, uh, is spotty at best and, uh, and deliberately hard to find. Um, but by and large, when it comes to, to uh, the sale of military equipment around the world, about 80% of it, uh, if you include all military hardware, comes from uh, you know, well, I mean, the five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council. So it's the United States, it's Russia, China, Britain, France. 
uh, and increasingly Germany, so what we would consider to be the P5 uh, plus one. And, and small arms effectively follow uh, that kind of pattern, uh, less so in terms of, of England's role when it comes to small arms, uh, but, but certainly other countries gain prominence. And you you cite in your talk, uh, this was a year ago, I don't know if it's changed significantly, but that that small arms, light weapons sales have tripled in the past 15 years, and deaths resulting from them have also tripled, uh, suggesting that we might want to see some cause and effect there. That's right. And, and as you know, uh, from a medical point of view, from a health point of view, proving causality uh, is much more involved than just, uh, you know, than just saying, well, look, there's a relationship between this, this outcome and, and this, uh, this event. But, but it does suggest, and this is the point that I was trying to make, that, uh, that, the, that the, the, the wide of, widespread availability of these weapons, that that is inherently destabilizing. And the more weapons you have, and the more weapons you have, have access to, and this is a pattern we see all around the world, uh, the more likely you will see within that population deaths as a result of gun violence. And that's true whether you're talking about uh, the United States or whether you're talking about countries that are experiencing active armed conflict. And, um, and so that, that was what I was trying to point out to the TED audience, is to say, okay, look, we can't show that X equals Y, that that is a direct relationship, but certainly um, the evidence is, is, is strong enough and overwhelming enough that we really ought to be critically looking at this issue. It seems to me, and I know historical analogies are not perfect, but it seems to me that it was European colonists, settlers, who pushed alcohol on Native Americans and then thought of them as all a bunch of drunks, uh, although they weren't producing their own alcohol. Uh, and it was you Americans and Brits who pushed opium on China and then thought of the Chinese as a bunch of drug addicts, uh, although they weren't the ones dealing the stuff. Uh, and here in the United States, people mostly think of the Middle East and Africa as sort of inherently violent places, places where people, because of something in their nature, kill a lot of each other with guns all the time uh, and never stop and think where the guns are produced, where the weapons are made, who's selling them, who's profiting from them. Do we, is that a fair uh, comparison and do we need to radically change how we think of the violence in these distant places? I certainly believe that we need to think very critically about uh, violence and the root causes of violence and and the factors that will uh, inflame tensions uh, and inflame violence. And, and if you look at the, long, if you look at the long lens of history, I mean, you've got a number of different uh, factors that will contribute to violence and instability in, in different corners of the world. You've got uh, a history of colonialism, even looking, for example, at the war in the Eastern Congo, the war in the Eastern Congo, a country formerly called Zaire, is, is considered to be the worst war in terms of the numbers of civilians killed since World War II. They've lost about 5 million people uh, directly and indirectly as a result of, of that conflict over the past 16 years. Uh, and if you look at, there's a fabulous book that was written by uh, Adam Hochschild on this called King Leopold's Ghost, and if you look at the history of, of, of Belgium and the colonial power uh, there and, and how that that pandered to different groups, how it set up uh, some groups to have leadership positions and not others, how they were the ones who introduced penalties of amputating hands and feet for not complying with Belgian demands, um, and their, their sort of rabid consumption of resources, which was that time at the rubber, the rubber trade. 
that, that these were all significant uh, contributing factors, and then they would prop up regimes on their way out, even as colonialism was coming to a close, they would prop up regimes uh, that would then continue those sort of favored nation relationships with some of those uh, colonial powers, and and deliberately, in the case of the Congo, um, uh, squeezing out to the point of, of uh, you know, until he was killed, uh, the, 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 the socialist front-runner in that part of the world, uh, Patrice Lumumba, and, and propping up, um, you know, much, much more unsavory regimes. Uh, and, and all of these things lead to this kind of legacy of violence and instability. And at the same time, even if you look at the arms trade, you've got countries that are at war, which is one of the things I show in my TED Talk, primarily concentrated in the global south and in the Middle East. And then if you look at the countries where the weapons are originating from, similar to your point on, on Native Americans, I mean, the countries profiting from that transaction are primarily in the global north. And, and I mean, there are exceptions to that, but primarily in the global north. Um, and, and, and this is a pattern that you do see, uh, unfortunately, all around the world. And when you, when you throw those weapons into an already highly unstable environment, where the borders were imposed, where in many cases the leadership and the governance was imposed, um, it, it is a recipe for humanitarian disaster. Very well said. I think we should note that Lumumba was not just killed by anyone, but was killed by Belgium with assistance from the CIA. Uh, well, that's and, correct. I mean, I didn't want to, uh, to do, that's a whole other conversation <laughs> oh, that could sure. take up our 30 minutes. So, Absolutely. Uh, but, but, it's, but it's very well uh, very well documented, and certainly, as I said, the King Leopold's Ghost is an, is an excellent book, which just shows how deep those colonial and, and, and destructive those colonial influences were in that region. Uh, indeed, and there's another author who's been on this program and should be familiar to our listeners. I think we should also give a footnote to to Vietnam, if you include Laos and Cambodia, as certainly rivaling the death toll uh, in the Congo. But yep. uh, but that's well known, and the Congo is not well known. Uh, and everybody says not another Rwanda, uh, without noting what caused it. And, and and nobody ever says not another Congo, although the death toll so much higher, uh, and the support for a killer like Paul Kagame, the president of of Rwanda at the time of and leading up to the disaster in Rwanda, part of what's you know fueled the the killing in in the Congo. We we seem to have a selective sort of outrage based on the politics of the nation we live in and the news sources of the nation we live in. Um, well, and who our allies are as well, and we we do tend to uh, you know we like to reduce war down to very tidy narratives of good guys and bad or so-called good guys and bad guys, but the reality is it's it's much more complicated and complex uh, and nuanced and uh, and it does require that we that that we dive into it and that we think in full paragraphs and Kagami is a, is a perfect example uh, which you raised President of Rwanda, who has been actively backing the rebels in eastern Congo for a very long time, uh, contributing to that violence and stability you've got the exchange of, of resources that were are being mined in the eastern Congo that are making their way out of Rwanda and being sold in exchange for cash and for weapons, and there's, there's no denying that that has certainly uh, added fuel to that particular conflict. And that's not even to mention some of the, the extrajudicial uh, executions that he has, is accused of having been involved in where they have uh, assassinated Rwandan dissidents in other, in other parts of the world. So... Um, you know, I mean, it, it is uh, it, it is a very intertwined, uh, murky, and complex 
conflict, and uh, and that's only one example. I mean, I, I can't even cite a single conflict where that, those kinds of uh, realities don't apply. Yeah, we're, we're speaking with Samantha Nutt, whose book is Damned Nations, and I highly recommend it. Um, much of the book has to do with aid, uh, where, which is the field you work in, and I, I was very interested in your descriptions in Somalia and elsewhere of how uh, the United States and other nations using the military to provide so-called aid uh, actually hurts aid and hurts the ability of independent organizations to to portray themselves as neutral and the ability of local residents to trust foreigners who are who are coming to help them. Can you can you talk about how using militaries for aid might not be the best approach to aid? Yes, I can, David. I think you captured that uh, really, really accurately there. In that, it, you know, increasingly, particularly uh, starting in the 1990s, um, although it, it does certainly predate that. This, but, 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 but NATO states in particular have taken up this baton of of winning hearts and minds and being seen as as people who are rebuilding nation states and not simply uh, destroying them or waging war. Um, and we saw the use of, of, of soldiers in, involved in humanitarian affairs in Somalia under the Operation Restore Hope banner, where they were in charge of bringing in food uh, for distribution. We certainly saw it in Afghanistan, where you had foreign troops engaged in school reconstruction and wells uh, and, and those kinds of, of community-based programs. Um, and, it's, and it's frankly continued. I mean, we've seen it in Iraq, and we see it in elsewhere. And what's, what's been happening as a result... Um, both, both directly and indirectly, is it has blurred the lines between um, military affairs and humanitarian affairs to the point where the idea of a humanitarian space has just completely evaporated. And increasingly, uh, you're seeing more and more aid workers who are being killed in the line of duty, even if you just look at the Syrian crisis for one moment, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm back from the region myself. I was actually in Iraq uh, last week. Um, you know, and you see the targeting of, of, of MSF, Doctors Without Borders Hospitals, and other hospitals and civilian affairs. Um, and, you know, there's, there's this sense that the business of saving lives is no longer distinct from the business of taking them. And so aid workers are being seen as, as part of that, that extension of, of, a, of a broader Western agenda, and they're, so therefore they're being seen as, as targets and they're being... Uh, abducted and kidnapped um, and assaulted at, at increasingly uh, devastating rates. And the impact of that from a humanitarian perspective is that it makes it that much harder for aid organizations to, to operate and to, to help civilians uh, survive and recover as a result of war. Our, our hands are effectively tied. And it's, it's almost to the point now where um, I don't even know how you begin to undo that. It is, it is so enmeshed in um, just this, this, this sense that, that all aid now is, is just part of a broader military agenda, and it's extremely unfortunate, unfortunate and so harmful to the humanitarian movement uh, writ large. Uh, and yet there is this big thirst in Western societies and, and around the world to do what help 
uh, we can do. Uh, and th there are people trying to deliver emergency aid themselves uh, as amateurs uh, to places that have faced disasters, whether natural or human-made. Uh, and yet you describe many of those efforts also uh, as not being well thought out and doing more harm than good. Uh, is, is that right? Are people who, who take matters into their own hands without looking to an expert organization likely to hurt the situation? the case that any one of us, if we were to go to a hospital or if we were affected by some kind of natural disaster, um, or even when we, we send our kids to school, we expect the people that we are dealing with uh, who are there to help us and to support us to be trained and qualified for the task. And unfortunately, the humanitarian movement um, has experienced, particularly over the past uh, decade, maybe even for 15 years, this, this, this kind of boom in, in uh, untrained, unqualified, well-intended foreigners who want to be at the center of the action, and in many cases can do a lot more harm than good. Africa in particular, and this is the point that I make in Damnation, is plagued by our misspent altruism from this side of the world. You know, when you look at the loss of hundreds of thousands of textile jobs in Africa, that can be directly linked back to the trade in used clothing originating from our side of the world. So we think that we're doing a good thing. We take our clothes, our surplus goods, we drop them in a community drop box, um, and we believe that they're going to go to somebody who needs it, not realizing that, in fact, some of those goods, many of those goods end up being resold into foreign markets, they flood those markets with, the, with cheap apparel, and they put those local tailors and those local textile workers out of jobs. And many of those um, will be women, for example, women who are involved in, in tailoring um, and selling their goods at market, and it, and it exacerbates already chronic levels of poverty. And we certainly, and I don't want to belabor this for you, I could talk about this for hours, but you know, we also saw this during the Haitian earthquake. We saw this glut of inexperienced people who went overseas and who, frankly, were, were in the way. And, and we need to, to, to remember that good intentions alone do not guarantee the best outcomes. You have to be trained and qualified, and you have to know what you're doing. Uh, otherwise, it, it really, you, you, um, I can't emphasize this enough, you're much, you're, you'll make a much more significant contribution if you stay at home and donate the airfare that you would have paid to be at the center of the action. Your book, Damned Nation, has lots of good advice on, on how people should do aid, um, but obviously one option that we haven't tried uh, would be for our governments to invest in aid on something like the scale they invest in killing. Um, I think the, the United States is the extreme in both regards, perhaps, uh, putting uh, across multiple departments and agencies some trillion dollars a year into war and war preparations. Uh, and uh, as far as I can tell, around $30 billion or, or less into actual non-military aid. Um, what it, If the world were to put, uh, I, I think you use the figure uh, one and a half trillion, others use the figure two trillion, uh, that, the, that the world spends on militarism every year. If the, if the world's governments were to put that kind of, of resources into aid, what could be accomplished? I think a tremendous amount could be accomplished. As you said, we roughly right now spend about 12 times in terms of our military spending 
uh, on uh, w- what we do on humanitarian assistance. So 12 times uh, in terms of one twelfth of what gets spent um, uh, uh, in terms of military uh, spending is what we spend on humanitarian aid. So it's the things like um, food and water and ensuring kids have access to education and promoting human rights and good governance in different corners of the world. Um, and that's, and we need to change that balance. There's no question that, that we are investing disproportionately in the weapons of our own destruction. And uh, while at the same time we are not really investing enough in reducing those threats over the long term, and we know that uh, education is inherently stabilizing for communities and for countries. We know that good governance takes uh, years to, to implement and a lot of training and a lot of resources. Similarly, we know that breaking the back of that climate of impunity that plagues many war-torn nations requires a strong functioning judicial system and a free press and that that takes investment and training we know that disarmament uh, is critical as well in terms of reducing those those threats. Um, and the illicit trade of, of resources and uh, narco-trafficking, I mean, their list is extremely long. And that if we were to invest in those things, that over time uh, you, you would be much less likely to see countries and communities that are at high risk of, of violence and poverty. Um, and thus reducing the need for that military spending. And um, unfortunately, though, and this is true for anything in, in really, I mean, as I said, in, as, as a public health doctor, it's true for healthcare care, too. Um, it's often so hard to convince uh, people to invest in prevention that we tend to uh, find ourselves just trying to do the high-cost management at the back end and not necessarily see... The, the kinds of impacts we can have on the front end that would save us so much expense and so much heartache over the long term. Absolutely. Uh, and of course, the United States and other nations like it could invest in disarmament simply by ceasing to arm uh, and, and yep. in investing in other industries that are more peaceful and better economically. Um, I, I, and, and one way we could do that that your book suggests outside of uh, gaining a representative, responsible, law-abiding government uh, would be to divest. I mean, you point out that uh, teachers' unions in New York, for example, have their retirement investments in weapons manufacture so that so that teachers who ought to be lobbying for a shift of resources toward useful things including education have a financial motive for for cheering for weapon sales uh, as a, a way to a secure retirement how do we how do we begin a campaign to really divest from war. I mean, there are campaigns to divest from nuclear weapons in particular, or from Israeli weapons in particular, but how do we go after one investment fund at a time? Do we go after one weapons manufacturer at a time? How do we, how do we really build a divestment campaign from war and weapons entirely? That's something, to be honest with you, that I've, I've spent a lot of time considering. And, and, of course, there's a certain amount of cynicism that exists in the world around the, the power of divestment to actually, to actually influence change. But, but I do see evidence increasingly that, that shareholders are, are looking at, um, at risk, right? And so they are looking at, well, um, what is the, the, the risk to this business if it's... Uh, 
I mean, frankly, if it's, if it's caught up in unsavory things in another part of the world. And, you know, it would be wonderful if businesses would be uh, moral and ethical entities, but if they're at least willing to consider the question from a fiduciary point of view, you know, ultimately, hopefully, it will get us to the same place. Um, and so, I mean, I personally think that when it comes to public sector funds, that, that there has to be a higher level of, of ethical screening and due diligence and that uh, arms manufacturers in particular, that if you are a public sector worker, which means you are invested in the public good, um, that investing in arms ought to be anathema in, 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 in that particular equation. It should, it sh- it should not represent um, the ethos and the philosophy of, of people who are dedicated to public service. And, for example, Norway has done this. I mean, Norway, uh, for their... Uh, government funds for their public funds, they shortlist every year uh, companies that they feel are ineligible, uh, which includes even things like certain mining companies and, and arms manufacturers and others. And so it is possible to come up with an agreed-upon list of, of, of uh, you know, eligible and ineligible companies based on their track record. And I think that that would have a very powerful uh, impact on companies that are behind the times in terms of, of doing that kind of due diligence and making sure that they're not contributing to suffering in other corners of the world. In terms of how to do it, uh, the small arms survey has you know, quite a lot of information around arms and where they're going and what they're being used for, uh, but so does a group called CIPRI, which is the Stockholm-based uh, Peace Research Institute, and it's, for listeners that are interested in this, it's SIPRI. Dot org, and every year they publish the list of the world's top 100 arms manufacturers. And unfortunately, it, it, it's often the case that it might be a portion of the business, but not the entire business. So the portion of the business that you know might manufacture fridges and telephones and microwaves, and then the other portion also manufactures military hardware. Um, and it will be up to those public sector uh, groups and funds to determine uh, what proportion is, is too much. Um, and then and to come up with their own criteria. But I would say even if you pick the top ten uh, in terms of their global contribution to the arms trade and divest from those, that that's an important start and it sends a very important message. Yeah, and, and public sector funds uh, are typically obliged to make public where they're investing their money, right? So we should be able to find out uh, weapons manufacturers, large and small, that, uh, you know, a, a federal or state fund is invested in. Is that right? Well, you would hope so. Certainly when I was uh, doing the research for my book, um, I tried to get information from both state uh, teachers' pension funds and provincial in Canada uh, teachers' pension funds. And and many of them only report if it's a certain level of investment uh, or they make it extremely difficult to, to find out. Or they hide behind um, the sort of fiduciary requirements that uh, investment firms have. And by that, I mean that legally they are bound uh, to do what is in the best interest of their, um, their stakeholders, which means that they're duty-bound to create the highest possible return. Otherwise, they're not um, in compliance themselves. And so they'll hide behind that as a reason for not being able to create any kind of divestment or ethical uh, policy because the fiduciary requirements are are not around ethics. The fiduciary requirements are around maximizing returns. But, but I've had conversations with a number of different um, fund management folks around this, and I think that's a very cynical way of looking at it. I think it is possible 
to, to, to do well and to do good. Um, and that if, if this issue was more rigorously studied to look at, well, what happens when you divest versus what happens if you just in, invest in more progressive, ethically sound uh, businesses, um, you know, I, I think it would, I think it would, people would be surprised. I think that actually uh, you still would be generating returns that would be acceptable to those shareholders. Wonderful advice uh, that uh, I, among others, are, are going to start working on, and I hope some listeners will join in. Uh, we've been speaking with Samantha Nutt. Her book is Damned Nations, Greed, Guns, Armies, and Aid. Check it out. I highly recommend it. Samantha Nutt, thank you for taking the time to come on Talk Nation Radio. Thanks so much, David. I really appreciate it. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, Please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.